0: This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, and John. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Anna Lemke. Anna is a psychiatrist, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, and the author of Dopamine Nation, finding balance in the age of indulgence. During our conversation, Anna talks about her journey to studying addiction, the downsides to dopamine surplus, modern addictions to devices and social media, what we can learn from drug addicts, the role of struggle in a healthy life, and how individuals might live wisely in our modern technological world. I think Anna is one of the most important figures in our society. Among other things, she provides us with what a good friend does, a mirror to ourselves, our habits, and what we are becoming. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anna Lemke. Anna Lemke, great to meet you. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Like with all my guests, but especially for you, I've really been looking forward to this. So welcome to the show. It's good to have you on.
1: Uh, Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Me too. So I'd love to start with Um, the story of why you got interested in the subjects we're going to talk about primarily today, which are dopamine addiction. Um, I know you're a psychiatrist, you work at Stanford. How did you personally get interested in the subject in the first place?
1: Yeah, I love that question. It was really a confluence of a number of different factors sort of happening simultaneously. The first was that... um, over about the last 20 years of practicing psychiatry, I have seen increasing numbers of young people and and adults um, coming in with terrible depression, anxiety, lack of motivation, lack of joy. And it just got to be more and more of a puzzle like here we have all of these w- wonderful things. And by the way, these were people who had good families. They had, you know, they were at good schools, they had meaningful work, they had a good social network. So there was no clear reason hmm. or even any like precipitate, which actually added to their suffering because on top of feeling miserable, they also felt guilty for feeling miserable. Right. Um, So that was one thing I, so, you know, I've over the years of of being a psychiatrist, I've just been so curious about that. Like, why, why are we all struggling so much? The other phenomenon that was happening was I was seeing more and more patients addicted to prescription opioids with terrible body pain. And what we were finding was that the longer they were on opioids, in many instances, the worse their pain got. And then paradoxically, when we helped these patients slowly taper off of their opioids, their pain improved. Hmm. And it was that, plus, you know, my knowledge of the neuroscience of how we process pleasure and pain that was kind of an aha moment for me. It was like, wow, maybe we're all like chronic pain patients on high-dose opioids. And that what we really need to do is somehow, you know, reset our pleasure pain threshold if we're going to find any modicum of joy, you know, in this incredibly dopamine saturated world. So it was sort of the convergence of that and then really, you know, experimenting with patients who... Came in as their chief complaint being depression or anxiety. And my saying to them, you know, I think if you stop smoking pot for a while, and even if we don't do anything else, your depression might get better because of the way that the brain works. And then, you know, brave souls uh, being willing to try that and coming back and saying like, it worked. Like, I, I feel so much better. And I'm also incredibly surprised because I had thought that the pot was the only thing that was sort of relieving my anxiety and depression. And then kind of even extending that to patients who are coming in with depression, anxiety, who are playing video games all day or who were, you know, on Snapchat all day or who were watching the news compulsively on all day and just kind of using this sort of neuroscience of addiction paradigm as a lens through which to try to understand more generally are suffering in the modern age.
0: I'm going to read a quote, and then I want to come back to that that point you just made. And this is, this is a quote that you note at the very beginning of your book, which is addiction broadly defined as the continued and compulsive consumption of a substance or behavior, despite its harm to self and or others. I want to just set the table with that as a baseline definition for a lot of what we're going to talk about. And I know another fundamental observation, you just alluded to this, that's kind of at the heart of your your work and your book, Dopamine Nation, is the fact that we, you know, maybe two primary observations. One is that we are animals. We are animals that were designed for a context that is so much different than the one in which we find ourselves today. And the context in which we find ourselves today is not... Uh, a circumstance where there is a dopamine um, lack, there is a dopamine surplus, and that the problems of modernity, as I read your work, are really those of abundance. Um, you just spoke about this a little bit with a couple of the the stories you just noted related to people that you see that seems to have gotten you into the work in the first place, who really at root of their psychological suffering may be that they have. Excessive dopamine um, exposure—that that's really the the primary issue. And I know in many interviews you have told the story about uh, which you're kind of famous for now, your gremlins imagery. (laughs) Um, And I'd love for you to speak to that. And you know the 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 show this show primarily talks about our culture and our society and what is happening within it. And your work to me is. Is so important because I think it is hitting on exactly what you noted, which is that in an era of amazing technology, amazing abundance, so many people are not feeling particularly well. Right. Um, and I think your work is hitting on the heart of why that might be. So I'd love for you to talk about that and maybe, maybe take that, the gremlin story and run with it and explain it in a way that you think might make sense to people as to what might be going on.
1: Yeah, thanks. And, you know, no matter, even though it's true, I've I've, I've told the, you know, use the gremlin and the balance metaphor many times. I'm happy to continue to do it because I do think that these types of metaphors can provide a very helpful frame in our everyday lives. And I also think it's fascinating the way we use language and metaphors and images to Provide a kind of roadmap to get us through the day. We, we do this unconsciously, but they they play a very powerful role in our lives. So I'm, I'm happy to do it. So, one of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 50 to 100 years is that pleasure and pain are co located. And that means that the same parts of our brain that process pleasure also process pain. And this has been shown through a multiple different modalities, EEGs, uh, fMRIs, um, other types of ways of looking at brain processing. So it's it's a really robust and reliable finding. Um, and it's it's a really interesting finding because if, if pleasure and pain are processed in the same place in our brain, you know how how are they interrelating with each other? And what the science essentially shows is that pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of a balance. So when I say balance, I mean imagine a board on a fulcrum kind of like a teeter- totter in a kid's playground, except that when this balance is at rest, it's level, with the ground. Actually, I think an even better metaphor, which I only thought of sort of after the book was already written, is instead of having that board be on a, like a triangular fulcrum, have it be on a ball because really it's a dynamic balance where we're constantly having to readjust ourselves to maintain the balance. But anyway, we can put that aside. Okay. So pleasure and pain they operate like opposite sides of a balance. So when we experience pleasure, the balance tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. One of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And our brains will work very hard to preserve and restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. In fact, the definition of stress in biology is a deviation from homeostasis. And when we do deviate from homeostasis with our pleasure pain balance, it actually does set off a cortisol response, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So anyway, when I read a romance novel, which is my drug of choice, my balance tilts slightly to the side of pleasure and my brain releases a chemical called dopamine. Now, importantly, we talk about dopamine overload in the world, but we're not actually ingesting dopamine. And if you ate a spoonful of dopamine, it would do nothing for you because it wouldn't pass the blood brain barrier. Mm -hmm. What we're really talking about is that we do things that cause our brain, which makes dopamine to release dopamine in a specific part of our brain called the reward pathway. Mm -hmm. So when I read a romance novel, because that is pleasurable for me, given my particular brain and wiring, my balance tilts to the side of pleasure and, and I get a release of dopamine from these specific neurons in a particular part of my brain called the reward pathway part of my brain. But no sooner has that happened, than my brain will adapt to the increased dopamine by down regulating dopamine transmission, by bringing in dopamine receptors, by making less dopamine. But the thing is that my brain doesn't just decrease dopamine to baseline levels. It actually goes below baseline for a period of time before going back up to baseline levels. One way to imagine that is that there is these little, there are these little neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tipped and equal an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. This is called the opponent process reaction and it's often experienced as the come down mm. After effect, the hangover. Now, if I, and that for me, it happens when I like finish the chapter and have to put the book down, right? So, but if I wait long enough, that craving to read more, which is represented by my balance being tipped to the side of pain, that's how my brain gets me to keep going with that activity. Why would my brain want me to do that? Because my brain is wired for a world of scarcity and ever present danger. And my brain's trying to keep me alive in that world. So when I encounter something pleasurable, my brain says, Don't stop, get as much of that as you can because it's not, it's hard to find and it's going to run out quickly. So you got to keep going. Right. Of course, that's not the world we live in now. So, anyway, I put my book down. The gremlins, after a little while, they hop off. I'm not craving and I restore homeostasis and I fall asleep. But let's say that when I feel that urge to keep going, I I do, right? And I read another chapter and another chapter. And now it's two in the morning. I'm exhausted. I finished that book, you know, and I, and what, what's happening in the brain is that if we continue that activity, and this is the second rule governing the balance that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial reward gets weaker and shorter, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. So in other words, over time, we accumulate enough gremlins, On the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room and they are camped out there right they've got their tents and their barbecues they're not going anywhere which is exactly what happens when we get into addicted brain we reset our pleasure pain threshold we now need to use our drug of choice not to feel good but just to counteract all those gremlins and get a level balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're walking around in a state of pain, which is what happens to people with severe addiction. Hmm. And which explains why they relapse even weeks and months after they stopped using, even when they can see objectively their lives are so much better. Basically, they're walking around with the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use otherwise known as craving. The other thing that happens when our balance gets tilted to the side of pain is that other more modest rewards are no longer enjoyable, right? So our focus really narrows and all we think about is that drug. All we want to do is that drug. Nothing else is interesting, which is exactly what happened to me. I started to lose interest in my husband and my kids. Even my work became uninteresting. I started taking these novels to, to work and reading in between patients. So detaching myself more and more from the world and wanting to just be in this fantasy place 24 seven, not wanting to come out of it, you know, which is exactly what happens when we become addicted. Now with enough brain plasticity and enough abstinence, those gremlins do start to hop off and balance is restored. Those gremlins never go away, unfortunately. They're waiting in the wings, eager to hop on again. So if we get triggered and reminded of our drug of choice, they're like, yay, <laughs> let's go. Um, and in fact, you know, even the euphoric recall of using tilts the balance a little bit to the side of pleasure. Those gremlins hop right on even with a memory of the drug, and then we're, we've got pain and then we've got craving, which has been shown in animal models, um, essentially that if you train a rat to know that if it presses a lever, it will get cocaine, it will essentially press that lever till it dies. If you then train the rat to learn that if, when it sees a light, Then if it goes to the lever and press, it'll get cocaine. But if there's no light, there's no cocaine. And what they found when they stuck a probe in the rat's brain to measure dopamine levels that, of course, when they pressed the lever and got the cocaine, there was a huge surge in dopamine. But here's the fascinating part. When they saw the light, just saw the light without any cocaine in their bodies yet, they got a tiny little increase in dopamine just knowing it was coming, followed by a little mini dopamine deficit state. Which is craving, and craving is what produces the motivation to do the work to go and get the drug.
0: Yeah, there are two more quotes I want to read from from your book that I think are speaking to this and and really at at the heart of what I want to talk about today, and and that um, I think are at the heart of your work. One is, I've thought about this a lot since since reading it. Persons with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise, for they show us who we truly are. The second quote I want to read to you is, the smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 for a wired generation. I'd love to start with the first quote related to what I think traditionally we all understand are addicts. I think in America, there is a full recognition of the fact that addicts exist You know, they, I think in popular culture, are viewed as the ragged looking homeless people on the street who are derelict and deeply troubled individuals that have nothing to do with you. Um, They're unlike you in any way. And I first became aware of your work through, and I think this is probably true for many people, through the social dilemma, which is about tech addiction and smartphone addiction. And something that I have seen in the last five years. I was thinking about how to frame this to you in terms of my observations about what it's like to walk around in America right now, that if you could mute the sound of social settings and social environments that we are now in and just watch the way people interacted with one another, right? 30 years ago, that would almost exclusively be Interpersonal exchanges and you know recognition of other people at the table. And I remember when I was a kid that if there if a pager went off at a Christmas Eve dinner and there was a doctor there, it was viewed as extremely rude. You know, it was it was an unfortunate um, fact that someone was going to have to interrupt. You know, a precious social time right. to go attend to something else. You know, you look around now, and if you were to mute this, the noise of social environments, it looks as though people are, you know, everyone can visualize this. You're staring at something else other than the, you know, it could be your best friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your wife or husband. Something is more important by action than that person. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to start with the traditional addicts that I know you have worked with for much of your career. And then I'd love for you to segue, if you can, into what you see now, uh, what, which I, you know, to me is just hiding in plain sight for all of us to witness, which is because the tech addiction is you know, moderately related to work and productivity, but not really, um, I think if we're being honest. There's this other massive addiction that seems to have slipped in very sneakily uh, and taken over a lot of our society. It's a long way for, for me to just set the table for you to talk about that. But maybe if we could begin with the traditional addicts that you see, and um, you can take that however you want. If I know in the book, you talk about people who have sex addictions and drug addictions, Um maybe prior to the smartphone being ubiquitous, what did did an addict typically look like in your office and in your practice for you?
1: Well, I mean, to just sort of go back to the original quote that you read, you know, what I've discovered about people with addiction, is that when they get into recovery, they're really these incredibly remarkable people. Because first of all, it takes tremendous effort and courage to get into recovery and a lot of discipline and ongoing effort to stay in recovery. And the kinds of wisdom that you have to evolve to maintain that, especially in the world we live in now, is really um, a wisdom that we could all benefit from and that I, in fact, have benefited benefited from in my own life. I've really learned a lot from my patients. And so, you know, one of the other threads is like this idea that, wow, you know, we, we all should really be practicing the basic tenets of, of recovery that people with these severe addictions have, have had to practice as a matter of survival. Yeah. As the result is that they have potentially a much better quality of life than the average, you know, non-addicted person, because again, they've sort of hit on these sort of fundamental practices that are really at the heart of, you know, human fulfillment. Um, A trend that I've been seeing, you know, again, over the past 20 years, but especially in the last 10 to 15 years since the advent of the smartphone, is more and more people who are coming in addicted to behaviors, things like shopping, watching the news, gambling, pornography, video games, social media. Um, You know, individuals who are just really, really hooked on their phones, and almost all of them will link. Their tipping point in terms of their compulsive overuse to the advent of the smartphone and this kind of twenty four seven portable access, where it just becomes like you know their pacifier was with, with them all the time. Um, and and of course, it's very hard, if if not impossible, to get away from. And I think your observations are really you know right on the money. People are like, well, you know, do you have any data showing that that smartphones are addictive? I'm like really you need data like just go walk around go 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 travel go look at the airport i mean airports are fascinating to me because i you can see it gradually happening more and more people kind of you know with their devices now it's like literally like a hundred percent there's nobody and and you kind of need the phones now to travel too but people are just you know, and it's boring, you're winning. And there's a lot about modern life that is like hard to tolerate, you know, flying on airplanes, like we all kind of want to be not there. Mm. And these devices, that's really what they offer. We, we can be not present. But the problem is that it's now extended into even the moments when really we should be fully present, the moments when we're with our young children, when we're with our loved ones, when we're teaching when we're learning when you know all of these things that really require us to make these deep human connections like even then we're choosing much of the time not to be present. And that is really fascinating because it does beg the question why? I mean why why in the face of like our beloved, would we rather check our phone? And I think one of the important explanations is that, the phone really is a drug and we really have become addicted. And the nature of addiction is that we lose the ability to choose, that we are caught up in this cycle of compulsive overconsumption that's driven by our physiology, which is rooted in this basic pleasure-pain balance, which was a very adaptive and healthy mechanism you know, in a world of scarcity, but which is just basically misfiring in the world that we live in now. And I think that that's a really key point because we feel like we are choosing these behaviors and we don't even really know why, but in, on some level, we're really, we, we're no longer choosing. We are addicted and therefore caught, you know, circling the drain, Mm. circling the drain and not even realizing on some level that we are.
0: Yeah. I know you have said that, um, it, you know, to go back to the initial quote about the you know, addicts being prophets for all of us and and that there's a lot we could learn from them. One of the, a couple of the words that I think you have used to describe your experience with recovering addicts, the, the first is humility, mm-hmm. um, the, the deep humility that they, that they yeah. seem to possess along with a a deep commitment to honesty, yeah. um, and it, it's funny to think about that word "profit" for people like that related to the subject we're talking about right now, which is smartphone and tech addiction. Because I, I you know, I would love to get your thoughts on this, but it it does seem like the word "an addict" has such a stigma around it, and people don't want to think that somehow they are caught up in some sort of an addiction. God knows I have these tendencies myself. Um, But how do you, how do you think if we were just as a culture honest with ourselves and we had a degree of humility about this subject, we would talk about it. What's the accurate way to assess the state of, you know, social media and tech addiction in 2022?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, what I find is that people are increasingly comfortable talking about, "Oh my gosh, I use my phone too much," or, "Oh, you know, I've been on social media too much." but it's i'm I'm a little bit worried that in a way, I mean that's good in a way, but in another way, you know what there really isn't space to talk about are the secret things that people are doing online which really are their more destructive addictions, Um, things like sex and pornography addiction. There is a huge and growing number of people who are addicted to compulsive masturbation and pornography and terrified to talk about it. So ashamed, Um, you know, so just, oh, self-loathing and everything And, and yet it's a really, really big problem. Um, you know, so it's a funny kind of a thing. Like I've just had this experience, like people are sort of okay. Number one, like talking about social media and then blaming Facebook. Hmm. Right. But what people aren't really willing to do is. Really dig down at what they could do differently, and also kind of accepting sort of all of these sort of hidden things that we're doing online. That like maybe it's not that bad, but would we want anyone to know? Probably not. You know that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, one one question that I wanted to ask you related to all of this is, and I know you have spoken in prior interviews related to the idea of dopamine fasting and you know you deal with people who come to see you all the time who are really grappling with some pretty serious modern addictions and it as i was preparing for this interview i was thinking that it seems like the modern world is just one great marshmallow test just <laughs> you know the, you know for people who aren't familiar with this it's a, it's a very as i understand it a basic test that's given to children where they are told, you know, they're, they're, a marshmallow is put in front of them and they are told, if you can wait something like 10 minutes, you will get two of these. Yeah. Um, and to some degree, it's an, I guess, a, a an assessment of of natural willpower. That being said, a lot of addiction, to your point, is not necessarily about choice. It's, it's a habitual um, act that is happening, you know, to some degree involuntarily. We do want to create, I would imagine, you know, people in our society who have habits that are positive, and even the word habit can be applied to addictive tendencies. Mm-hmm. And I, I know in your book you mentioned that. Yeah, I was reading. I was reading a review of your book this morning, and someone who someone who had interviewed you was noting that they had told some of their coworkers that you were coming on their podcast, and they were terrified of you. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they they were you know you you were the bearer of the bad news and kind of the the arbiter of truth who was going to sh- show them how addicted they they actually were and they just didn't want to deal with that um i was wondering you know from your perspective and i know you're a mom what you think a healthy person generally looks like right now in in terms of their habits um. You know, to me, when I think about at the beginning of a year, what kind of habits I want to create, the goal is in part for me to be able to create a lifestyle that I don't really have to think about that much during the course of a given day. It's just, it becomes, I guess, somewhat of an addiction. It becomes a habit that I have already decided in a prior time, this is going to be a part of who I am, whether that's waking up earlier or getting you know, uh, exercise, you know, most days, maybe the simplest way to to ask you this question is, uh, to, to learn how you talk about this with your kids. And my understanding is that you have teenage sons. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. when you, you said this in a prior interview as well, that you, you talk about this a lot at the dinner table oh I'm sure, yeah i'm sure those conversations are fascinating <laughs> uh, but but what how do you frame this for them in terms of these budding young mm-hmm. young men to create lives that do have habits in them but are you know wisely navigating the the modern terrain
1: yeah so what what i do with um, you know our kids. In addition to talking to them about the pleasure pain balance and the gremlins mm-hmm. and how the neuroscience works, which I just think is a helpful frame, yeah, it really resonates with people's lived experience when they stop to think about it. Um, I, I, what I do is I just, you know, we we first of all we have created a large we created a largely tech free space when yeah. the kids were little, and I think that's important. So you build some foundational habits. That are you know immersive in the body, that have good you know mind body connection. I mean, this is things like being outdoors in nature, um, exercising, um, you know, eating right, going to sleep when the sun goes down, waking up when the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. um, You know, all those kinds of basic sort of things. Trying to live a little bit closer to the rhythms of nature, even as detached as we are from those rhythms, recognizing that we are animals that we have this physiology, and that when we try too hard to mess with the basic physiology, it doesn't really work. And then, you know, there might be a day when my youngest, our younger son, you know, he'll like, we'll be gone. So we can't yell at him to get off. And he will have spent the entire day on Minecraft. And, you know, because we have this credo of, radical honesty, trying as much as we can. We don't always succeed to be honest with each other. You know, I'll ask him, what what did you do? And he'll tell me the truth. And then trying to get him to really be thoughtful about his own experience. How was that? You know, how, how was that for you, both while you were in it and also afterwards? And I think when we're, when we slow down, and that's really key. We, we slow down our lives. We slow down our, you know, breathing. We ask ourselves those kinds of questions. And we're really honest with ourselves and each other. He could say, you know, actually like the first hour or two was fun, but then it stopped being fun. And yet I kept going. And after six hours, like it was hard to get off, but I, I wanted to get off, and then when I did get off, I felt like, oh, I felt like crap. And actually it was kind of a waste of a day. So if I had to rate the day, it wasn't a great day, right? So it's getting people to really look hard at that because you know, what are our lives except for the accumulation of our days? And we we need to be thoughtful about our time because that's probably our most precious commodity. So if you can look back at a day of six hours in Minecraft and say that wasn't really a very good day, okay, you know, that's really good information. How, how, do, how do you want to do tomorrow differently so that, you know, you come out a little bit ahead and not a little bit behind and I just want to emphasize when I say ahead or behind, I think sometimes the whole wellness movement can feel also like a perfection ladder. You know, like you're know, like you ascending the layers of wellness. I mean, it's never like that. It seems like every day is just sort of restarting the computer. You're like, oh, here we go again. Um, I'm just trying not to like, again, circle the drain. I'm just trying to like maintain. So, and I think that that, that relatively modest goal is both worth it and probably, you know, um, realistic, at least for me. Yeah.
0: Uh, The, the man I was mentioning earlier that made the observation that he was, he was terrified of you. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that's fully justified because, you know, you're not anti-pleasure as I read your, your work. You don't believe that we should all turn into like full aesthetics and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, self-denying monks. Um, uh, but that being said, I have noticed too that a lot of times when I'm in group settings and they're, for example, I'll just take television as an example. You know, there are people I know who pretty much after dinner for three hours a night are watching some sort of a, a Netflix show. And God knows I love Netflix shows every once in a while. They're they're great. But again, I think in my just visual read on if if i were inside the television looking back at the audience and i muted the the noise the people who are watching who who have a habit of watching that many hours of tv a day they look sedated oftentimes i mean it it, it is not the same as being on an opioid drip and you know be, being you know borderline Unconscious, but there is a lack of affect, and um, that can become a big chunk of your day. I mean, if that is becoming a a a two to three hour um, segment per day, I I think, and you you have alluded to this in this conversation already about uh, you know the the wellness community, and I know you you wrote in your book Dopamine Nation about the insistence on happiness. And that is a theme in our culture of people needing to be happy all the time. It's like its own fetish. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the life I live currently, the happiest places I tend to be are those with no technology and some struggle. You know, they're difficult workout classes. They're, you know, a big, I live right next to Barton Springs pool in, in Austin, which is a Relatively cold pool that if you go in there, it's going to, it's not going to feel particularly comfortable. But the, if you were to watch the people who are circling the perimeter, it's one of the happiest places I go to <laughs> in, in my life. And uh-huh. I'd love to, t- to get to give you an opportunity to talk about what you think the role is for struggle mm-hmm. in the modern world. Because while struggle doesn't, when you do difficult things, it isn't particularly comfortable. You, Kind of by definition, are feeling a bit uncomfortable and that you're pushing yourself, but there is its own reward that comes from proving to yourself that you can you know push through things that are difficult so how do you think about the importance and the role of of struggle in a in a you know wise and good life currently?
1: Yeah, well, I would echo what you just said that when we struggle and overcome, it becomes a psychological touchstone yeah. that gives us confidence when we encounter other struggles. We can say to ourselves, I got through that. I can, I, I'm, I, I can get through this next thing. And that then becomes integrated as part of our identity of who we are. I'm a survivor. I'm a fighter. I can overcome. And that's really, really important, I think, mm-hmm. for, you know, getting through things, um, giving us the hope and the confidence that we can sort of tackle whatever comes our way. Um, And so that's an important piece of it. But even beyond the psychological sort of autobiographical narratives that we tell about ourselves, um, doing things that are either physically or emotionally painful or uncomfortable actually has a strong physiologic fat effect, which is mm-hmm. to reset the pleasure pain pathway. So remember when we do something sort of intoxicating or pleasurable, the gremlins hop on the pain side. Well, when we do something that's painful or uncomfortable, those gremlins literally hop, I mean, not literally, but they hop on the pleasure side, you know, and, and effectively what happens is that when we're exposing ourselves to mild to moderate toxic stimuli like exercise, which is in the short term toxic to cells, we're essentially telling our body, oh, there's an injury here. I need to protect the body by upregulating these protective feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin norepinephrine, our endocannabinoid system, our endo-opioid system, we make all of those intoxicants ourselves in very small quantities in response to injury or challenges, so that it's actually physiologically beneficial and healing, as long as that painful stimulus isn't too extreme. If we press too hard and too fast on the pain side of balance, we effectively turn that into a drug. We get a flooding of our feel-good, you know, hormones and neurotransmitters. And then it's basically like an intoxicant. So for example, cutting on yourself releases a huge amount of um, endogenous opioids and essentially becomes like a drug that people Mm. get addicted to jumping out of airplanes is another one. You know, your, your body's like, I'm going to die. And there's a flood of these hormones. And with repeated exposure, people actually get anhedonic or depressed, you know, with successive sort of jumping out of airplanes. Um, And there's, there's actually a small study showing that. So, you know, the key is just like on the intoxicant or pleasure side, it's okay to indulge in pleasures, but you want to do it intermittently and you want to do it, you know, in moderation. And if you're going to use a really potent intoxicant, make sure you just use a little bit. And it's the same thing on the pain side. You know, it's important to do things like exercise and, you know, doing things that are anxiety provoking and and other ways uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, you don't want to do you don't want to do something that's really extremely painful because that's then gone too far. So I I do think, especially in the world we live in today, because it's such a comfortable world and because there are so many intoxicants at our fingertips, we have to be intentional about making our lives harder. Mm. We have to intentionally do things in an Unconvenient way, right? Because there's like, everything is convenient, but actually we have to on purpose, make things harder hmm. because of the world that we live in. And the fact that we're not really evolved for this world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you use the word survivor earlier to describe people who are really trying to push themselves in to grow. And, you know, that's what the human animal is. I mean, we're, we're the survivors of the, our ancestors who were able to make it Right, survive Vibers, in nature, divers. yeah, yeah, one thing that i I had not thought about before really this conversation, and I should back up and say that a lot of the conversations I try to have on this show are to try to improve the dialogue between Americans about what's happening in our culture that have nothing to do with politics and have everything to do with just our common humanity, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of the you know divisiveness that is i think has been fueled by social media and technology you know i think there are probably many reasons why people will speak in a way and write in a way behind the relative anonymity of a an avatar online that they would never speak to somebody if they were in person and that that is just it does have a corrosive effect, I think, on the way people are perceiving their fellow citizens, especially when the business models of these companies are based upon controversy. But one thing that had never really occurred to me is that it's possible that some of this is rooted in the irritability, the anxiety, the depression that is being caused by the tech addiction in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you think about that? You know, as I think it's most people in this country are now aware of how toxic a lot of the language is. You know, it's, Twitter is a tough place to hang out um, these <laughs> days. And and as an addiction expert, I'd love to get your thoughts on how, the role you think that its addictiveness and the symptoms of of its addictiveness might be playing in the way you know human interaction is is taking place on those platforms in the first place?
1: So here's a, what I consider to be a really powerful piece of data. If you look at different countries across the world and you look at the rates of depression, the rates of anxiety, the rates of suicide, they very, very clearly correlate with how wealthy that country is the wealthier the country, the higher the rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, and other forms of mental illness. And in the past 30 years, we've seen an increase in mental illness and a decrease in happiness all over the world. Mm. But the steepest differences are in the richest countries. Not only that, interestingly, the countries where you have the most access to mental health treatment and the most prescribing of things like antidepressants, we're not seeing any appreciable change in the rates of depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So so that tells me a a couple of things. It tells me that abundance seems to be highly correlated with misery, Mm -hmm. but also that what we are doing to try to counteract this misery isn't working very well. Mm -hmm. And and what we're doing is, you know, throwing a lot of drugs at people. Um, And, you know, obviously there are other things like psychotherapy, and it's not to say that there's no utility for antidepressants. I, I believe they have utility. It's not to say that psychotherapy doesn't work. I think psychotherapy can be a very powerful tool. Finding access to it is really hard. But what it does say is that there's something else going on here that trumps all the rest of that. That's a very powerful force that's that we need to pay attention to and think about. And that I think is really primarily coming out of this uh, sort of recalibration of our pleasure pain thresholds as a result of bombarding our reward pathway with all of these intoxicants in ways we do large and small 24 seven. And that we, we, we need to recognize this. and, And, and indeed, I think it does, as you say, play out in the way that people are outraged you know about all the these things in part because they don't really have anything real to be outraged about. Now that's going to sound terrible. Of course, people struggle and there's suffering and there's lots of injustice. And but you know the, the extent to which people people are just like outraged by relatively small things again, I think it speaks to this like this change set point or threshold for experiencing pleasure and tolerating pain, which we've now reached a place where we need so much pleasure to feel pleasure. And even the merest slight, you know, has us kind of writhing in pain. And it's not that it's not real pain. I mean, people are genuinely... In pain, but what we're not seeing clearly is the cause of that pain. We're telling stories to ourselves about, you know, this thing and that thing, but the real cause might actually be our underlying physiology and the mismatch between, you know, our primitive wiring and the world that we live in now.
0: Yeah, I I have thought about this as I've gotten older. That oftentimes, my favorite people that I meet in America are immigrants because mm-hmm. they 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 have such a great attitude about struggle and work and the opportunities that exist in this country and there's a purity to the love of of America that right. you often see in immigrants that I just think is so beautiful and makes me proud to to live here and to uh, also to try to reinforce that why they love the country so that I don't forget yeah. That, yeah, that that it's um mm-hmm. that that's something that I don't want to lose too. You know, you you've spoken to the importance of struggle, and it's it's a it's such a weird place to be as a civilization, where arguably the most important thing you can do to improve your life is to intentionally make it harder. <laughs> uh, and yes. I, I, you know, I, I'd love for you to talk about what. You know, an average "quote unquote" American might be able to do, or th- at least think about doing, to 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 begin to do that, to begin to m- introduce some inconvenience and some struggle in their life for a just a better existence on balance. How do you think about that? What what are some you know, uh, you know clear options that people might have to be able to begin to do that?
1: Yeah, I think there are so many things that we can do. The first thing that we can do is just unplug for a period of time every day Hmm. um, because we're constantly plugged in, right? And I think just sitting in silence is actually really scary and hard, but really useful. It, you know, again, what happens is that we sort of heighten our senses, we start to pay attention to things that we've been ignoring, the rustle of the wind in the trees, the
0: birds,
1: maybe the creakiness of the building that we're living in, um, the whoosh of the tires as we're driving in our car, just sitting in silence. I think that's really important. And it gives us the opportunity also to, you know, allow our own thoughts and feelings to just sort of roll And to not try to control them and not try to distract ourselves. And so, again, importantly, familiarizing ourselves with ourselves in a way we can't do when we're constantly distracting ourselves. I think another really important piece is trying to be back in, in our bodies. Like for so many of us are like these disembodied heads, not connected to our bodies. You can do that in so many ways. You know, there are various like, you know, stretching or yoga or Feldenkrais practices. You can go, I always say to my patients, you know, you don't have to join a gym and start sweating. Just walk in your neighborhood, walk 30 minutes a day in your neighborhood. Just get yourself out there, walk around maybe don't listen to anything when you're walking, just get into kind of a rhythm. I think rhythm is important. Like we're so detached from the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of our own body. So that's why a lot of times people talk about breathing practices, but you know, it's not any one thing, you know, our thing is we know, we know what we need. Mm We are just afraid to let ourselves engage in that way, but being in our bodies is really, really important. Um, And then, you know, I think working from there, working from there, um, anytime that there's an opportunity where you could actually walk instead of drive, things like that, little things that we can do, um, do, do, don't do things that the fastest way possible, but maybe do it a slower way, you know, um, maybe you could use a machine for that, but what if you didn't, you know, what if you took the time, slowed it down, um, Those are the types of things, you know, I'm, of course there are more active ways to introduce asceticism. I mean, ice cold water baths are really popular, intermittent fasting, um, you know, more extreme versions of exercise. I think for some people that's really good, you know, and they need more friction in that way. And of course you get dopamine that way, right? You get it indirectly, which is a better way to get it. Um, So it sort of depends like where your starting point is in the, in the book i Like in one of my patients who had gotten to the point where he was so socially phobic, he wouldn't even go out and talk to people. So for him to like go to Starbucks and order his coffee, not using the app, but instead, actually talking to the barista—that was a huge breakthrough for him. Whereas somebody else, like Alex Honnold, you know, he has to like climb, you know, like the next uh, El Capitan in order for him to feel kind of that he's approaching, you know, a challenge. So we're all at different places on the mountain. The key is we have to face the mountain and try to climb up it, no matter you know where we're starting. Because if you're always just taking the gondola you know, you really are missing out. You may get the same view, but you don't appreciate it in the same way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is, I think, um, going back to the importance of of being honest with, you know, your your own habits in life. And I know you write in the book, if I remember correctly, that it is possible to be a little bit addicted, that a, okay. a little bit addicted to something in your life, that this is not necessarily a zero or one situation um there's a range of how addicted you might be to a certain behavior that you're perpetuating every single day i'm wondering for you as a doctor what is the tipping point generally in your judgment of when something has gone awry from i you know i enjoy eating chocolate every night to i enjoy you know having wine a couple nights a week you know the the quote that i mentioned earlier is that that you start the book with, which is addiction broadly defined is the continued and compulsive consumption of a substance or behavior despite its harm to self and or others. Is it really that last part related to despite its harm to self and or others? That is the delineation between being a little addicted to something and like this is becoming a problem or how do you think about that generally?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think ultimately it's the negative consequences, but what I think people don't realize is that those negative consequences begin in a very subtle place and sort of outside of our conscious awareness or understanding of their causality, Hmm. which is to say, so so for the things that I really look for are things related to this pleasure-pain balance. For example, when we become less interested or take less joy in other things, That's very subtle, but that happened to me. I thought that I was just getting sort of bored of my profession, but really I was experiencing the hijacked brain um, of addiction. Like I have a patient who got addicted to video games and he went to college and he was so excited to be a computer science major ended up playing video games 24 seven and then found himself very bored by computer science and thought, well, maybe I'm in the wrong major. So this is, this is a very common thing where it's kind of that it's not like the, Oh, I got a DUI instead. It's like, uh, you know things are. This person's boring, or I don't like my job, or you know I, I don't want to do that thing. Where we're where things that we used to enjoy, or that you know you would think we would enjoy, we aren't enjoying. I think that's a very important sign to look for. The other thing is just tolerance. Finding that you're needing more potent forms and more of the drug to get the same effect. For me, it was this progression from like the Twilight Saga, which is a vampire romance written for teenagers you know, to this very graphic erotica, because I just needed a bigger and bigger jolt to kind of feel anything at all. Um, And I would kind of sort of joke about it, but seriously, it was real. I mean, it really, there was that progression. So I think that's an important thing to look look for. And then I do think that the, the, you know, the honesty, and when we find ourselves lying or kind of telling partial truths about what we're doing and how we're spending our time or how much we actually ingested or how much time we actually spent online watching YouTube videos. When we start to lie, that's also something to look for.
0: Yeah. I, I will tell you, I mean, just personally that when I think about those things myself, and I think like all humans, I have some addictive tendencies probably more than most. You know, I remember hearing you say this in a prior interview as well, that it's very possible that in Hunter-gatherer times in prehistory, it was the addictive types that may have been really pushing the tribe forward because yeah. they they were not satisfied with the status quo and they were always pushing it. And I, I think you often see this to be the case with the great quote unquote achievers in our society who are absolutely relentless. Um, and nothing seems to, to satiate them. You know, for me personally, as I've I've thought about, you know, what are the areas in my life that I am at risk for being addicted to things. It really, it is something like YouTube videos. I mean, I find so much of the material so compelling Mm -hmm. and so interesting. And I'm grateful that it exists because I have learned an enormous amount. I mean, even in preparation for this interview, the the quality of the material Mm. to learn from somebody like yourself is just amazing. But you know, if if I'm not careful and I don't fill my <laughs> fill my days up with, you know, act, you know, ensuring that I'm seeing friends and doing new things and yeah. getting out of the house, like that that is a that is a risk point that I think I'm aware of for for me. You know, I love really high quality coffee is something that I know <laughs> I I didn't drink coffee until I was in my mid twenties, and yeah, you know, these these are you know I don't nowhere near I think the addictions that are really putting me at risk for things, but I'm, I'm also aware that, um, if I'm not mindful of some of this stuff, it could tip into, um, uh, into a kind of a dangerous territory. I, I know in my own family that we, I, I had, my mom's sister was, uh, was an alcoholic and went to AA and you talk a lot about AA and your book and, and how wonderful you, you think, um, the, the steps are. And you know she I was too young to really know all of the details of what happened to her, but I know eventually there was an intervention where you know there obviously to me, as I read it what an intervention really means is that there is complete denialism going on by the person with the addiction right. to the point where the the people closest to them need to step in, feel a responsibility to step in and actually. Be, hold firm on the fact that this is a problem that we will be here to support you with, but that has to be addressed. Right. And you know that it, it was interesting talking about the transition in our culture into yeah, you know, as as the quote is that I read earlier, the smartphone the smartphone is the modern day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine twenty four seven for a wired generation. The level of potential denial that exists currently with with people who are in our society and i would be curious to know you know if there is somebody in your close orbit or your your family or somebody that you love who you think has tipped over into an area of of addiction to these these items that are really uh, detrimental to your life Mm -hmm. what, what is, what's the right way to go about broaching that subject? You know, is it really taking a page out of the playbook of having an intervention like happened in my own family? How do you think about how to do that in a way that is, you know, uh, effective and also ethical?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, you know, hiring an interventionist and doing a formal intervention can be very helpful in some situations, but I think what you're asking is like before you get to that point, yeah. what what might be some some ways that we as individuals can try to intervene, um, you know, in this what we see as a, as a dangerous progression in someone we care about. I think the the first thing is is kind of to get the idea of it being an intervention out of our heads yeah. and recognizing that um you know it's a mysterious constellation of forces that comes together that gets somebody to say okay i want help or I- i'm willing to you know trust you or somebody else and, and embrace this this help and in my experience If we come to our loved one or even, you know, with my patients who I love um, with too much urgency and anxiety around wanting to change them, it usually doesn't work. Um, So what we have to do first is get sort of some peace with our limited ability to do anything at all. And it's sort of a paradoxical thing because I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. I'm saying we have to kind of embrace the possibility of our not being able to do anything and to be sort of calm about it. And then I think in a scheduled, calm time time and place, so what what we're what we're inclined to often do is right after there's some consequence, or the you know the person has acted out or were injured in some way to then retaliate and say you're an alcoholic you know you, while Sorry. all there's this heightened emotion that that's never going to work so you don't want it to be this reactive space you want to schedule a separate time and place when you're calm when that person is relatively able to you know listen at least even if they're not gonna and then the the key there is just like here is what I am seeing. And to just describe factually what we are observing, because what happens when we get in our addiction is we literally cannot see it. Mm. It's sort of it, it. It's a little bit like when someone has someone has bipolar disorder and they're manic, like everybody can see that they're manic, but they don't see it. It's an altered brain state. We literally cannot see the consequences, or we don't see, even if we can sort of admit them, we don't see them clearly. So it's a matter of, in a calm way saying, here's what I am observing. You are using this quantity for this much amount of time. It has this impact on your behavior. It has this impact on our family. It has this impact, you know, on me, just kind of like that in a calm and factual way, all, of course, embraced by, I'm telling you this because I love you and I want more for you. I want better for you. I want more for us. So I think that's kind of the, the. I don't know, is that sort of what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It,
0: it is. And, and this was one subject that I, I wanted to bring up to you as well, which I I've thought about for Many years. And I I think, especially as somebody, especially when I was young, younger, um, I was extremely focused and dedicated and a bit addicted, as a lot of young, ambitious, precocious kids are, to getting into a great school, getting great grades, um, performing. You know, really, it wasn't, I was always interested in learning, but my capacity for work was more rooted in probably a desire to be appreciated and, and loved. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, I love learning and it's one of something I thankfully have time to do every day, but I wanted to broach the subject with you of work and workaholism Mm -hmm. because you know, that there are addictions that I think in our culture, we see clearly as, well, that's, That's obviously an an addiction. That's another. That's somebody who is at risk of ending up with a needle in their arm in a in a basement somewhere. Um, But then there are these other addictions that are linked, often to, or at least close cousins to, success as we define it as Americans. Right. And I mean, I, I think about you and your all of your accomplishments and the stress that you must have in your job and the you know incredibly impressive credentials that you have in the book that you wrote that's done so well. You know, workaholism it does seem to have or it can have the kind of adverse effects on families and friends and a life that is really actually internally very difficult to be living day in and day out, that is more performative than it really is connected to something inside of you. Yes. Um, I just wanted to present that to you and and get your thoughts on, you know, when, when work in and of itself might tip into an addictive, um, addictive side, you know, one other thing I'll just add to that is that I used to live in the Bay area. I I lived out in San Francisco in the mission for seven years. And one of the things I vividly remember is you know, it's filled with some of the smartest people in the world. And, you know, those public and private high schools are filled with these, you know, genius kids with parents who are millionaires. And I'm sure you see them in your office quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, but you couldn't live a year in San Francisco without reading a, about a story of some, you know, valedictorian who had thrown herself in front of a train Yeah. and That, that, that is the, I saw you, I saw you on, um, when you did an interview with Joe Rogan, and he was talking to you about the super successful people in our society. And I think he may have mentioned somebody like a Michael Jordan, who, you know, people, I loved him as a kid. People revere him as sort of the pinnacle of success in America. And, And you were bringing up, you know, the, some of the potential darker sides of that level of success. Right. And I don't think stories like that, or the stories of, you know, the the children of these tech, you know, millionaires and CEOs that end up so preoccupied and troubled with the pressure of having to perform that they end up doing what they do. Um, and I, you know, this, a lot of this seems potentially a a bit more like an art than a science and we're beginning to try to navigate this in a rational way, but how do you think about, you know, a a healthy way that young people and adults can go about wanting to have productive lives and do work that they're proud of without, you know, at some points really risking their life. Um, yeah. Or certainly a, a meaningful life in the in the service of what exactly you know, either making more money or getting another title. I don't know. I, I just I wanted you to be able to have a have time to talk about that issue specifically.
1: Yeah, that's such a important topic and really at the heart of everything. And I have so many thoughts. Um, we were talking in the beginning about. How the metaphor of the pleasure-pain balance should really be a board on a ball. Yeah. Because it staying in balance requires this constant shuffling and readjustment. It's a dynamic process. It's not like you figured it out and then you're good to go for the yeah. rest of your life. It's a daily yes. struggle. And I would say that my own personal struggle and also that of my children who were raising here in Palo Alto mm-hmm. um, is is primarily this problem of achievement and workaholism and, you know, how, how to find that balance between wanting to do good things, you know, and, and have meaning and purpose and yet not fall into this trap of having it be defined in a way that is ultimately self and other destructive. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, I do a lot of personal pra- practices, and I have a certain belief structure um, that really informs my efforts to com- combat this. And I mean, it's I, I, I without going into it in too much depth. Basically, whenever I'm clinging to anything I've done. As my achievement for which I want recognition, I know I'm headed to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. But when I see my work as really, I am just a vessel for yeah. potentially honored to be a vessel for doing good in the world, but it's not really my actions or my will, mm-hmm. then I'm in the right place. And of course, this, you know, this perspective can, you can take it, you can, you can see it in a secular light, or you can see it in a, in a, you know, in a spiritual light or or even a, a religious pathway. But for me, that's really at the heart of it. Um, Recognizing that narcissistic self-preoccupation, self-aggrandizement is endemic in our culture. It's promoted. It's encouraged. You know, heroes of today are people like Mark Zuckerberg, this very materialistic and self-focused notion of being, you know, a billionaire. And this is what young people are either implicitly or explicitly told to strive for. And just really trying to disconnect from that and to be in the flow of authentic experience and reflect on what, what is the work or the good that I can do on any given day. Hmm. And to be really humble also in the face of that, it's very hard to know, yeah. right? You th- might think you're doing good by doing this, but you are actually ultimately harmed somebody, you know? And so like a lot of humility around it And a lot of recognizing that we're all broken, that we're easily go astray, that we're easily taken in by the shiny things. Um, And a lot of active discussion, I think, as families and as parents raising children about our vulnerability in this regard in our modern world. And I'll just, you know, reflect a little uh, example from my family life recently. So our daughter you know, uh, start joined track and field and was sort of a surprise standout runner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, my other kids are swimmers and, and, you know, we've been swimmers for a long time. She was a swimmer and my kids are sort of like average swimmers. They're, they're not, they're not, they're good swimmers. They're not great swimmers. My daughter was sort of on this trajectory of, like being a very good runner. And I found myself very eager to go watch her races, willing to travel across the Bay, you know, to go see a meet, to get to watch her run and win. Mm -hmm. And the amount of joy and like really intense pleasure that I took in her being a winner, Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, and I, I tried to like, keep it on the down low, but really ultimately it leaked out and she could sense it. Yeah. And she, she said to me, mom, you know, I, I don't really, really, now let me just emphasize, I'm not like super involved. Right. But even the, in her running, like, I'm not like, rah, rah, you know? yeah. so it's yeah. not even, but even the little bit that it was. Because she's very attuned and smart and sensitive, she could sense it that kind of that the narcissistic investment that I had in her running was leaking out and contaminating her experience. So she was like, no, I don't really want you to come to the meet and I know I don't really want to tell you how I did. And I had to completely readjust. And now when she comes home from a meet, I don't even ask her like, did you win or what was your time or anything. It's just I let her decide what she wants, and it's hard. And it was also humbling and embarrassing to recognize that yeah, like I'm that person. Like I'm not a screamer at the meets, but I'm screaming in my head, right? Like I'm not the 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 parents like rah rah externally (laughs) because like I'm too sophisticated. But inside, I'm going rah rah, crush them, you know? Like like wow, that yeah, that that's me. You know, that's me. And so just this constant kind of trying to be aware, trying to recalibrate. And as a parent, really owning the way that that kind of narcissistic overinvestment can really destroy it for our kids, um, destroy their enjoyment, mess up their priorities, you know, kind of interfere with their their own ability to be in their flow and to do their thing without feeling like they're doing it because it makes their parents happy or because it's going to get them into the right college. You know, Those are all hard things that we need to pay attention to and continue. And I'm just grateful that my daughter feels comfortable letting me know and that she recognizes that we're all fallible, including her own parents, but they don't mean it. And that we can all kind of make these micro adjustments.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, as I think back on my upbringing, I think one of the the greatest gifts that my parents gave me, I grew up in Northwestern Pennsylvania in a, in a small suburb of Erie, Pennsylvania, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, um, I think one of the best gifts I received from them was high standards, but low, low expectations in the sense that I wasn't, I wasn't getting those signals that I had to be Extraordinary to be, you know, a part of the family, um, and I met a lot of kids. I went to Duke, and I went. A, I met a lot of kids that I don't think had that kind of an upbringing. Yeah. Right. You know, they they were not all of them, but many of them did seem rather tortured that they, it was already marked by the time they were eighteen or nineteen that they were going to work for Goldman Sachs, and I, I didn't know what that was at the time. Um, and it's it's funny we're talking about this because I last year set up a mentorship program at my high school that we're trying to get off the ground. And I talked to the guidance counselor at this, you know, my high school in in Erie was I think 500 people in total. It's a very good public school. She was talking about how in, I think it was in eighth grade, the high school is Fairview High School. And it it is a very good high school for uh, for the region of the country that You know, all of the kids were being asked. I think it was which Ivy League school they would like to attend. And you know, I played sports when I was a kid, and I was very mediocre in almost all of them. And it's it's something I've had to really rethink because I believe in big dreams and and big missions in life. But you know, not everyone is is you know has it in them to play in the NBA or go to Stanford or go to Harvard and i placing that kind of pressure if i would have been raised in that environment i would have totally crumbled and it would have been extremely difficult for me to be i mean high school is hard enough as it is but if you're getting signals from an early age that unless you go to you know a top 10 or top 20 college you're basically a failure in life, and you know you've only been around that environment, so you don't really know if that's true or not. It just seems crazy to me and and kind of cruel. And um, I don't know. i i I think we are probably collectively trying to decide how to both give great opportunities to to kids while at the same time not being too hard on them if they turn out to be average because, that's kind of what most of us are going to be uh, <laughs> by almost by definition. Right. Um, I, I know we're getting towards the the end of the conversation. And um, before we do that, I just I want to reiterate something I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is I, I just think your your work is extremely important and um I really have a lot of respect for what you do and the ideas that you share. And this is partly why I'm addicted to YouTube videos because (laughs) yours is available for me to watch. And it's just, there are just so many mind blowing observations that do change the way I think about Mm -hmm. habits and addictiveness and how to live a a healthier life. Um, I guess I'll close by saying, you know, I think we are, we're kind of the guinea pig Generation with a lot of this stuff. That, yes, you know we're we no other uh, you know era of human beings has ever had to deal with a lot of the uh, troubling issues of abundance and addictiveness that we are now facing. And I, I'd love to give you a, an opportunity as we close to ask you, you know, outside of your work and you know your your podcast interviews, your books, who else would you suggest for people? to go to, to seek out, you know, counsel in their ideas in their work to, um, better understand what is happening to addictiveness in the world and in America, you know, mostly to live a, a wiser, better, more fulfilled life. Who, who, if anyone, would you point people to in, in that regard?
1: Wow. Great question. Um, I mean, I just think about sort of the the books that have, you know, really impacted my life. Um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search yep. for Meaning, that's a standard. But I've just gone back to it again and again. And every time I read it, it's so powerful and so valuable. Um, I love Mark Epstein's work. He He's a psychiatrist and he's also a Zen Buddhist. And he talks about integrating those two experiences, and he just came out with a new book which I haven't read yet, but I think that's really powerful work. Um, I'm reading a lot now in the in the sort of theology and spirituality and and sort of grappling with things from that perspective. There is a growing number of people who uh, recognize themselves as spiritual but not religious, yeah. which is very interesting. So people are trying to um, you know, gain access to, deeper meaning and purpose and transcendence in a healthy and adaptive way, but don't feel kinship with any particular religion. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to read folks in that space. So I don't know, I guess, I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that those are sort of where, where, um, where I'm spending time these days.
0: If I could sneak in one final question. Yeah. I know, I know that you You do a decent number of these podcast interviews. They're, you know, they're somewhat infrequent, but you're publicly, you know, your your notoriety has has um, gained some prominence, and I think your work has certainly has. You do plenty of these interviews and conversations. I would just, I'd love to give you an opportunity to address, you know, a question or a subject related to your work that you feel like has not been approached in prior conversations that you think really is important or matters that you infrequently or never get a chance to talk about if, if anything comes to mind I'd, I'd love for you to you know have a have an opportunity to, to speak to anything that you anything else we haven't covered and we've covered a lot today uh, that you think might be important
1: yeah well you, your questions were great I mean so thoughtful and you've clearly really delved into my work and my ideas and gosh I'm so grateful for you know, the time you've spent and the deep thinking you've done on these matters and the great questions and the great conversation today. So, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, you know, I guess one of the things that, the, the, uh, sort of a theory that I play with a little bit in the book, and it comes at the very end, um, is this idea of shame and why it is that so many of us, like addiction aside, I think that shame is really pervasive. Um, And I've wondered about why that is, why we um, experience so much shame and self-loathing. And sort of a theory I have about that is that it is related to our narcissistic culture Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that it is that sort of when we recognize people as individuals, we're essentially removing them from the group or the tribe and shame is this emotion that is i think has evolved to get us to rejoin the tribe it's effect you know it's it's a it's essentially a pro social emo- emotion right what, when do we we experience shame we experience shame when we have done something that Typically, in a bad way, um, you know, goes against the norms of the group, and we are discovered for having done that, and then we are gripped with this incredible fear of abandonment and being shunned or expelled, which really gets to the heart of, um, you know, what what makes us human, which is we're social creatures and we want to belong, and we would do anything, um, you know, to make sure that we belong. So I kind of speculate on. You know, this this constant sort of recognition of the individual for their work, which we just think of as just like so basic that and normal that we would do that, is actually what is driving this sense of shame that that we all feel. And I relate it a little bit, you know to some of my own experiences where I've given these big public talks, and you know even when they've gone well. Afterwards, there's this incredible feeling of shame that I have, Mm -hmm. kind of like you know the come down, right? It's like the price of you know of self recognition is this shame, Um, and I was interesting. I was talking to Russell Brand, who you probably know, Russell Brand, and. Um, I was on his podcast and he he could really relate to that. And he talked about how he would give these performances and it would be like uh, this high for him, but then afterwards this terrible come down. And I think that's happening all the time to us. You know, we keep striving to be recognized for our work, but then we all, when we are, it's sort of never enough. And then afterwards, there's this, like, this shame that follows on the heels of it. So I think that's really interesting to me. And it's informed my own behavior because I really try hard like to not to see my work or any of my talks literally not see them but also just sort of not even recognize them as anything that i have done i don't i really just see it as these these ideas are are hopefully helpful and i'm kind of a vessel as are others you know um and that's been helpful for me
0: yeah yeah this was such a pleasure. And yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for you for, for doing this and for doing all the work that you do. And I, I think that is a great mentality to have generally for work in life of being a vessel for you know, trying to make the world a little bit of a better place. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. It was really a pleasure to meet you. And um, I wish you all the, all the best with um, everything that you do with, with your work and in life too.
1: Thank you so much. And you keep up your wonderful work. Uh, I I love that you love learning and it's great that uh, you're doing the podcast. Thanks, Anna. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.